are listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Good morning again. The reading this morning is Jonah 1. 1 through 16, and part of it will repeat what we heard last Sunday, and uh, we will then continue on from there. Uh, You can follow along in your pew Bibles, and honestly, I forgot to bring the page number with me. (laughs) I think it's in your bulletin. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittal, saying, go at once to Nineveh, that great city and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What are you doing sound asleep. Get up and call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. Then the sailors said to one another, come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? I am a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them so. Then they said to him, what shall, you, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, O Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood for you, O Lord. Have, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Thanks be the Lord for this lesson. Good 
Good morning again, everyone. <clears throat> Try that again. Good morning again, everyone. There we go. Awesome. So we're in the season of Lent, right? I feel, I feel like I should ask, or maybe I shouldn't. How is Lent going? Uh, like, did anyone here give something up and, like, you've already failed miserably? Any hands? There's no, there's no shame. Anybody want to confess? Yeah. Um, like, you, you're going to give up sweets, and then you had a rough day, and before you know it, you're binging ice cream, and ah, yeah. Um, I was really hoping to get my sleep patterns in order this Lent, which I know doesn't sound like super spiritual, but uh, the morning is when I tend to be most, uh, most able or most likely to do things like pray and read the Bible and exercise, which are all like pretty spiritual things for me. Um, but this last year has been really, really bad. I've been like waking up at random times, not sleeping well, staying up too late. So I was really hoping to establish some healthy sleeping habits in Lent. You know, go to bed at the same time each night, sleep well, get up early, and I have dropped the ball completely uh, with that. But now that you all know you can hold me accountable, and like who doesn't want to call out their pastor, right? So like if I'm, if I'm looking groggy or sleepy, feel free to call me on the carpet, um, and uh, you know, hopefully I'll get back on track. So last week we started a new teaching series on the book of Jonah. And if you weren't here last week, I'd highly recommend to go on our website and listen to that sermon because that one was pretty foundational. We set some uh, guideposts that are going to guide us over these next few weeks as we read this book together. Does anyone remember those guideposts? Like, and bonus if you haven't memorized, does anyone remember there were three things that we said we were going to do as we read Jonah? Oh, this is going to make me really sad. <clears throat> Anybody? It's funny. Jonah is funny. Jonah's a really hilarious book. It is filled with irony and absurdity. That was one. Jonah is funny. Craig. Yes, Jonah is counter-programming. That's crucial. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he hates the Ninevites. These are the people who crushed his people. And so the story of Jonah gets at this idea that God loves even our enemies. It's counter-programming to the whole us versus them divide we find in so much of religion. So Jonah's funny. Jonah's counter-programming. Does anyone remember the third one? I'll give you, I'll give you a, a hint. Repentance. Turning. Yes. Jonah is a call to repentance. Everyone repents in this book. The men, women, and children, the animals. God repents at one point. Um, so those are the three things. If you want more of that, go online, listen to that sermon. You can hear all about that. Um, but for this week, we're actually going to get into the story of Jonah a little bit. Um, and chapter one is fascinating. So God calls the prophet, God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and prophesy, but instead Jonah goes to Tarshish. Now we've got a map that we weren't able to show last week just to kind of get at the difference here. And it's, it's kind of funny. <clears throat> Jonah's not only going in the wrong direction, he's going like as far as you can possibly go at the time in the wrong direction. <clears throat> This isn't just disobeying God, this is outright defying God, doing the opposite of what God told you to do. It'd be kind of like if, um, if you could imagine a parent giving their child like some money and saying, go get a respectable haircut for senior pictures, and instead the kid came back with their hair dyed blue. Now, I don't personally know anyone who would do a thing like that, but they'd probably grow up to be a pastor. I'll let, you, I'll let you read between the lines on that one. So, so Jonah goes uh, on the boat to Tarshish. He falls asleep in the boat quite soundly, 
for uh, someone who's fleeing from the creator of the universe over water. And then God sends a storm. The sailors freak out and start offering sacrifices to every god they know. Uh, it's revealed that Jonah is the problem. And then Jonah tells them the only thing they can do to save themselves is throw him off the boat. So they do, the storms stop, and the sailors worship Jonah's God and make vows. Before we really get into the substance of this story, I want to talk to you about the form. Because you can actually learn a lot about a story by, by looking at how the story is told. We're gonna, oh, I got an ice cube. Sorry, that was gross. <clears throat> We're going to talk about form. We're going to get a little into the weeds here. This is going to get a little technical. And there's always a danger with this sort of thing. When you get into real technical exploration of, of biblical forms, there's this danger that it's, it's actually summarized really well in this meme I found online. So there's two pictures. The first picture is this like friendly-looking teacher type. And it says, what I think I look like discussing theology. Second picture is a bit different. The second picture... Uh, what I actually look like discussing theology. So uh, we're going to try to avoid this second picture, but fair warning, we'll see how it goes. All right, let's look at the form of Jonah. And I want to start with verse 3, because verse 3 is a pretty pivotal part of the story. This is when God has called Jonah to go to Nineveh, but Jonah has other plans. Verse 3 should be on the screen. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went down to the ship to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Did we mention Jonah's going to Tarshish? Did you get that? Did you catch that? Yeah. The, it tells us he's going to Tarshish three times. What's with the repetition? And, like, you see stuff like this in the Bible a lot. Like, it'll say something like, Moses went on the mountain. And God met Moses on the mountain, and Moses stayed with God on the mountain, and so God came to Moses on the mountain. And it's like, we get it. Moses met God on a mountain. Jonah is heading to Tarshish. What's with all the repetition? Well, if we look at this verse a bit differently, we're going to see that the author is actually up to something here. Let's read it again. This time it's going to look a little bit different on the screens. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship, <clears throat> going to Tarshish. So he paid his fare and went down to the ship to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Do you see the structure here? Do you see what the author is doing? The passage mirrors itself. It starts out with Jonah fleeing to Tarshish, away from God's presence, and it ends with Jonah on his way to Tarshish, away from God's presence. In the second part of the verse, he goes down to find a ship. In the second last part of the verse, he goes down into the ship. And the whole verse is anchored by this reminder in the middle that he's going to Tarshish when he should be going to Nineveh. There's a structure here, A, B, C, B, A. In poetry, this is called a chiasm. Has anyone ever heard of a chiastic poem? It's a poem structured like that, A, B, C, C, B, A. It mirrors itself. The first half reflects the second half, and vice versa. The entire book of Jonah is loaded with this stuff. The first two chapters are reflected in chapters 3 and 4. The opening lines of chapter 3 are almost exactly like the opening lines of chapter 1. This mirror image stuff starts here in verse 3, 
But the rabbit hole goes way deeper. And I want to just look at the rest of chapter 1 real quick. In verses 4 and 5, it's going to be on the screen, God hurls a wind at the ship and the sailors sacrifice to their gods. But at the end of this chapter, verses 15 and 16, the sailors hurl Jonah, hurl and hurl, and they sacrifice to Jonah's God. There's that structure. Then next in verse 6, the captain of the ship asks Jonah to pray to his God, and he also professes God's freedom. Maybe God will save us. In verses 13 and 14, it's the sailors who pray to Jonah's God and acknowledge God's freedom. And then finally in the middle, verses 7 to 9, there's this whole series of events where the sailors try to figure out who's at fault. They cast lots. They figure out it's Jonah. He tells them who he is and what God he serves. And then that's reflected back in the very next verses, 10 to 12, where the sailors figure out what Jonah did, and Jonah tells them to throw him into the sea. Have we gotten back to the second picture yet? I just feel like I should check. Are we here? I hope, I hope not. I hope this is all tracking. Do you see the structure in this passage? Next slide, Travis. Do you see the structure here? It's that same thing. The first half of the story mirrors the second half. And this, this form runs through the entire book. Now, why would an author do something like this? Why spend as much time shaping the form of the story as actually telling the story? Why is this important, and what is this supposed to tell us? Well, for one, all this care and attention makes it pretty hard to dismiss this story. A lot of times when we read the Bible, it feels so old. It feels so foreign. It's like, how could a story that's centuries old say anything to us today? Those people back then, they were so backwards, so ancient. We know so much better now. We have reason. We have science. We know that stuff like this doesn't really happen. You don't get swallowed by a fish and puked up three days later. But the structure of this book kind of points out to us that this is a work of art. We're dealing with art here. This story has been masterfully constructed. There's not a phrase or a word that's out of place. And the story is told carefully because it contains wisdom and insights that are just as relevant today as they were 2,600 years ago. There's care that's been taken here. So that's one function. It commands our respect. Another function, though, of, of uh, this kind of structure is it really highlights the contrast between Jonah and the sailors. Jonah and the sailors could not be more different from each other. He's a prophet, right? He's a man of God. He's a man of the cloth. And they're sailors, which carries all the same kind of, like, blue-collar, low-brow stereotypes that sailors carry today. What's the saying? Curse like a sailor, right? Which, like, I don't know many sailors. I don't even know if that's really fair. Like, are sailors that bad? Like, could it be curse like a nurse or... Curse like a chef. Curse like a pastor, honestly. I know a lot of pastors. You would be shocked uh, what they say when you all aren't listening. But yeah, curse like a sailor. There's still this connotation. Jonah and the sailors differ by appearance, but their actions really highlight the contrast here. Jonah is a man of God who's fleeing from God. These sailors are pagans who end up worshiping God. 
with very little help from the prophet. As soon as the storm comes, these sailors turn directly to their gods. These aren't men of the cloth, but they are men of deep faith. Meanwhile, Jonah is fast asleep, and the captain of the ship has to beg him to pray. This is a non-Jewish, obviously non-Christian sailor begging the prophet of God to speak to God. Who's the prophet in that situation? Something to think about. Then when Jonah tells the sailors to throw him overboard, at first they refuse to do it. They keep rowing. The prophet of God is prescribing death, but these people who don't even know God, they want life. They don't want to kill Jonah. And then when they do throw him overboard, they beg God to have mercy on them. Don't let us perish on account of this man's life, for you, O Lord, has done as it's pleased you. The sailors get it. And the story ends with Jonah, the prophet of God, sinking to the bottom of the sea while these pagan, unbelieving sailors worship God. What a strange story. What do you suppose we're supposed to take away from a story like this? For one, one takeaway, looks can be deceiving. Oftentimes it's the outsiders who get it and the insiders who miss the point. And as Christians, as people who worship a crucified Messiah, and as a people who are shaped by stories like these, we should be the last people to judge based on appearances. Just because someone looks holy, it doesn't mean they are holy. And on the flip side, you might look like a hot mess, but that doesn't actually mean you're a mess. You might actually be exactly where God wants you to be. Have you ever been in a situation where, like, you went in expecting that you were the spiritual expert? You were the one with insights that you were going to impart on someone else, only to find out over the course of the conversation that this person had far more to teach you than you could ever teach them? Has anyone ever been in that kind of a situation? Or think about, like, some of the biggest critics of the church. The atheist intellectual who thinks we're all hypocrites. The neighbor who can't bring up religion without talking about clergy sex abuse scandals. Or your friend who doesn't go to church anymore because the people there are too judgmental. I think as as Christians, as the insiders, supposedly, our first instinct often is to go on the defensive. We want to argue, we want to push back, we want to say, oh no, it's not that bad. What if we actually listened? What if we acknowledge the fact that sometimes God uses those outside the community to call God's people to be faithful? To call us to actually follow the faith we profess? That's what's happening in Jonah chapter 1. Jonah, the man of God, is way off base, and it's the God-fearing pagans who are calling him to repent. Jesus was very tuned into this idea. He was always calling out the religious leaders, the religious insiders, and hanging out with all the sinners, hanging out with all the wrong people. Where do you think he got that idea from? I mean, it helps that he was God, but Jesus was also Jewish. Jesus would have been very well acquainted with stories like these, where it's the outsiders who get it and the insiders who miss 
the point. So that's one takeaway. Looks can be deceiving. Second takeaway is the hard fact that many of us would rather die than change course. This one's a tough one. I'm just going to kind of warn you up front. <laughs> when Jonas found out, when it's discovered that he is the problem, that God sent this storm because of him, he actually has a lot of options. He could have prayed. He could have offered a sacrifice and made vows like the sailors. I'm not exactly sure how sacrificing on a boat works. I've never sailed. I assume it's customary to bring along like three or four expendable animals just in case you hit trouble. I don't know, but, but the sailors are sacrificing. Jonah could sacrifice. He doesn't. He could have told the captain to turn the ship around, take him to Nineveh. He could have acknowledged at the very least that he was at fault and asked God for forgiveness. Jonah doesn't do any of that. He tells the sailors to throw him overboard because he'd rather die than change. If you've ever struggled with like drug or alcohol addiction, or if you have loved ones who've gone through that, this idea might hit really close to home to you or for you. This fear of change, even when not changing, means death. But it's not just addicts who deal with this stuff. This is an unfortunate part of the human condition. Think about any destructive habit you've wrestled with, something you knew wasn't good for you, but you kept returning to it anyway. Think about unhealthy relationships, abusive partners, friends who bring you down, people who suck the life out of you, but for some reason you keep hanging out with them. Or think about somebody who hates their job. They're always complaining about their job, how they need to find a new job. Oh, my job is terrible. But they never actually go to find a new job because the fear of change is worse than the pain of staying. We cling to things, even things that are destroying us because we're too afraid to change. People do it. Organizations do it. Countries do it. Churches do it. How many churches have closed their doors after years and years of doing the same thing that's not working? Wondering what's wrong with everybody else out there when maybe the change needs to come from what's happening in here. The gospel is an invitation to turn. Jesus often shows up in our lives like that captain on Jonah's ship calling us to wake up from our sleep and acknowledge where we've gone wrong, calling us to turn and go back to God. The gospel's an invitation to change course, to leave behind what's familiar and try out something new. Jonah had that option. He could have repented, at which point the story might have gone really differently for him. Instead, Jonah had himself thrown in the sea. And we'll find out how that turned out next week. Let's pray. God, it's hard to change. It is terrifying to think about turning away from what's familiar, leaving what we're used to, and trying something new. Even when it's destroying us, Lord, it's just easier to go to sleep 
in the bottom of the boat and wait for it all to be over. But you are a God who stirs us awake. You're a God who challenges us, who speaks to us in surprising new ways. So we ask you to wake us from our slumber. Lead us in the direction you would have us go. Speak into our lives as individuals, as a community, and as a church. Conform us to the image of your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.